Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Out in the Field podcast. We're going to be interviewing a couple, um, Philip and uh, Masha Barnett, uh, who were missionaries to the Ukraine for how many years? 26 years. 26 years. And uh, we're going to see what God did in their lives during that, that long span of time. Uh, so, Philip, uh, you were the first one to go over there. Is that correct? Masha's from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I had never gotten married, and I met her there, and we got married there 23 years ago. 23 years ago. And so, I guess we'll start with you then. Um, what what made you want to go to the Ukraine? Well, uh, first, I got called to, I got filled with the Holy Ghost when I was 12 years old. And then, uh, right after that, God called me to be a missionary when I was 12. And I remember that night I told my mom and pastor as I was leaving the building, before I went out of the building, that I was going to be a missionary. And God called me that night. And then when I was 14, God called me to preach. And so it started from there. And the reason I ended up in Ukraine, uh, first, I'd done mission work uh, in Honduras. I lived in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, in Central America for a few months. And I'd I studied Spanish several years, and I just didn't feel like that was where God wanted me, so I came back to America, and then later on ended up in Ukraine. But there's, and it, excuse me with my voice, I, I teach eight or nine classes at school every day. I'm a choir director. Anyway, uh, it goes back many, many years before that. Uh, my mom's mother, her name was Golda Street, when she was a, a young girl, a teenager, there were a couple of women that came from Ukraine to her church where she went somewhere north of Tulsa. Uh, she was country girl. She went to church, I guess it was in maybe in Ramona, about halfway between Tulsa and Bartlesville. Anyway, uh, the two women ministered, and she, they talked about the persecution and the terrible things that were going on, what the communists were doing. Uh, in uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine and that area. And, and so was this the 1980s? The, oh, no, no, no. This was many years before that. This would have been probably uh, before World War II. long oh, time before okay. World War II. And my grandma got saved when she was like nine, maybe, at a, a camp meeting at, down on the river. Actually, it was a brush arbor down on the river. She and my the man who's my grandpa, they both got saved in the same brush arbor on the Caney River just south of Bartlesville. Well, anyway, this service, these ladies talked about, and they said, we really need missionaries to come to Ukraine, Russia, and to help us. And Well, she, there was no way communists wouldn't allow American missionaries into Russia or Ukraine, any of that area. And her, especially being a, a female, it was a no a no-brainer. She couldn't go. She could never go. And so all of her life, she prayed for Ukraine and Russia. All of her life, she prayed and prayed and prayed. And whenever I went to Ukraine, then I came back on a trip. I came back, and she said, you, you realize, Philip, you're in Ukraine because of me. She said, I wanted to go all of my life, and there was no possibility because it was under communism since before World War II. And uh, she was 90, in her early 90s when she passed away. And uh, so she said, you're there because of me, because I couldn't go. And she said, I have 16 grandchildren, and God chose you to go. And so you're representing me. 
And so, and I understood all, and every time, I, every year I would come back once a year or so to America for a few weeks to preach and raise funds. And she would always say, Philip, you're there because of me, because I couldn't go. And so God chose one of my grandchildren to go in my place. So Golda Street, she's in heaven with the Lord. She and Grandpa are in heaven. And, but they, uh, I'm there because of my grandma. So God answers prayers. Oh, yes. Sometimes it just takes a while. Yeah. And so, and I never, when I went to Ukraine, I didn't speak a word of Russian. They spoke Russian, was the main language there in Ukraine at the time, not Ukrainian. I didn't know how to say yes or no or where's the bathroom. And uh, so I went in cold turkey. I went in uh, to south central Ukraine in 1992. And I went in to preach an evangelization to organize the church. There basically hadn't been any evangelists in that part of Ukraine because they had their ICBM nuclear missile program in that area and it didn't open up till a little later and so I went in in 92 and in 91 uh, we go back into the Bible uh, God told Moses to tell the children of Israel if anybody if any family any tribe rejects me as being God and they turn to idols they turn away from me I will judge that family or that tribe for four generations. You notice in the Ten Commandments, God says, it talks about, and he says in the Ten Commandments, I will, you know, turn away, I will, you know, will, will what be the wording, I will not bless your children, your, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren to the fourth generation of those who reject me. I will not, I will withhold myself to a degree from them. To show love and mercy and to even to the thousandth generation. Yeah, but those, the, but those who love me, right. yes, you got it. So those in the Soviet Union who rejected, in 1921, they formed a Soviet Union. They rejected God. And so that generation, their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren, they went without God's blessings on their nations, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, the main nations. And so 70 years, God said, for 70 years, I'm going to judge you three generations. Those who reject me and three, and until their great-grandchildren come and come of age, then I will give them opportunity again. Same thing happened to Israel. Israel rejected God. Israel first and then Judah. And how long did Judah go into Babylonian captivity? 70 years. Just like God says, I'll judge you 70 years. And then Jeremiah prophesied, after the 70th, on the 70th year, then God will return you to, to Jerusalem and to Israel. So the Soviet Union received judgment for 70 years. And in 1991, the 70 years were completed. And on Christmas Day, December 25th, where we, we celebrate Christmas in the Western world, most of the world celebrates Christmas on December 25th. That's not the day Jesus was born, but that's when we celebrate it. But in the Soviet Union... Christmas, which wasn't celebrated in the old Orthodox Christmas, was celebrated on January 7th. The new year, the old new year, is January 14th. And seven days earlier is January 7th. So that's when they celebrate Christmas still now. Christmas is January 7th. Well, in our Gregorian calendar, the first of the year is January 1st. You come back seven days earlier, you have December 25th. So 
on the day that most of the world celebrates Christmas, on December 25th, the Soviet Union broke apart uh, up in Belarus, uh, around Minsk, somewhere the capital of Belarus, the Soviet Union uh, broke apart, and Ukraine became a separate nation. For a short period of time, you didn't even need a visa. After about six months, everything was you know, was pretty confused for about six months or so. And then it opened up in the middle of 1992 that you didn't need a visa to get into to, uh, Ukraine. And there was about a six-month window. And so in that six-month window in 1992, I got into Ukraine, just went in uh, with a couple of friends of mine. We went in, and they gave gave me a visa, and so I was able to get in. God just planned it for that period of time, and I I went for thirteen days. It was just a sh- short trip. Well, going going back to what you said said about the judgment for seventy years, did you know it back then? No, like, were oh, you no. expecting things? Or? No, I knew not. I okay. knew nothing of that back then. And I've been preaching now fifty two years. I started. Uh, I accepted my calling to preach when I was 14, but I knew nothing about that. I learned about that later uh, in Ukraine, that it was, oh, 70 years. And look, it was, you know, God judged the Soviet Union 70 years, just like he judged Israel, 70 years. And in 1991, Soviet Union broke apart. And so I went for 13 days and went to south-central Ukraine to a city called Komsomolsk. Uh, Komsomolsk, okay, Ma, I should jump in here. What does Komsomolsk mean? Komsomolsk is, uh, uh, actually, it comes from the root word of communism, and so it's communism um, promoting name, Komsomolsk. So a lot of the names of the cities were changed from their original names and and made with communist names. Now in Ukraine, when uh, Russia was thrown out of Ukraine, Ukraine began taking out all of the communist names and putting in their historical names. And it still has gone on today. Uh, Ukraine is rejecting everything with communism, has rejected all of communism because it doesn't work. Communism, socialism does not work. And so uh, they reject that. So I went to and explained what, okay, we have in America, we've had the Boy, Boy Scout and Girl Scout system. Well, they had the same type system over there. And what they did, they would go through the Soviet Union and they built literally thousands of campgrounds. And when the children were young, they would take the children for the summer and maybe for a long period of time, how long, weeks at a time, and they would put them in these camps (coughs) and indoctrinate them into communist ideology. You've got to start when you're young and that's what the communists would do. So whenever the kids were, what, 1 through 11 they were, what was, you had Cosmo, but before that you had... Well, the very first, whenever you start school, which in Ukraine it was at that moment when you were seven, a um, couple months later they put you, they give you a star, and you wear it, and it's called, um, I don't know how you even describe it in English. Well, just but the, the, star, the star, the star, uh, it's from the word October, which October, was from connected the October from Revolution, October, October Revolution. 17th. Communist, and um, we wore that star. And then the next step, when you were in the third grade, I believe, they take you to another place, nicer place, and they dedicate you as a what's called in Russian pioneer, which is not the same like in 
in, in they were called young pioneers like we have the boys they were called young pioneers and you wore like a red scarf right here and uh, around your neck around your neck is this like the equivalent of the hitler jugend then similar but different okay. but the same type it was a system indoctrination okay. you got it. and that's a good idea what the germans did with hitler okay go ahead and then you. when you were i believe in the i don't even 13, know because i never got to, uh, i never got to or be no. uh no you wear you wear another little um, symbol with a star and the flame behind, but I never even got to be that in school. So, yeah. okay. so, it, so it you went, already, went through this as a. I child? went through the little star level, and then the, when you wear this little the uh, red scarf, red scarf, pioneer. And it, at what age did they become a Komsomol? I don't. Well, I think it's like maybe 13, 14, 13, 14, 14. 14. Like when you start, you probably 29. like here, would it be like high school? So ninth grade maybe? Well, did this I, all end at 1992 or did it take a few years to kind of Basically it ended. Basically it did. So how old were you when this happened? Uh, when uh, the Soviet Union fell apart? Yeah, at 92, yeah. Oh, probably the, the 12, 13 years old. Okay. Was well, that like a culture shock? Like, what what was going through was, your mind at that time? I actually was young enough to nev never really understand the deepness of all of that. Mm -hmm. so. Well, so when they would finish the young pioneers, and I think it's the age 13, they would become a komsomo. And you were a komsomo till you were 29, and then at age 30, you could be a full fledged communist. So that was in the, the Communist system. Party. In the Communist Party, and everybody was required. And you don't come to the Communist Party, you don't get a good job. You don't get salaries. I mean, it's a big problem. Right. Total control by the federal government. And that's, that's why what a lot of people think like the mark of the beast is going to be communist based because it's based on that social credit score essentially. Well, it won't be communism. It will be different, but it will be. Uh, well, that'd be another topic. Maybe another it. topic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the system. The Pioneers to become a Komsomol and then to uh, become a full fledged communist, registered communist. Well, so I went to this town, Komsomol. I think it was like 70,000 people lived there and it was brand new. I remember the very first night and we had a hall rented. And it's an interesting story. I was evangelizing from coast to coast. I was a music teacher in Manford Elementary School. I had 450 kids around that that I taught. I had 16 classes, eight one day, eight the next. And I would sit at my window in my music room in the elementary school, and I would look out the window, and right out my window was Assembly of God Church. I mean, I could just toss a little rock and hit the side of the church. It was right by my window. And it was a Baptist church across the street, Methodist church on the corner, and I would look out my window at these churches, especially the Assembly of God was right there. And I would think, God, you called me to be a missionary. And I was pastoring. I pastored in a town called Drumright. I was there nine years, and I was teaching school. Six of those years I taught. And I thought, when am I going to get to be a missionary? And the Lord told me my third year there, he says, you are a missionary to this little town. So my thinking was to be a missionary overseas, you know. So I was a missionary to Drumright. Had lots of kids, uh, got saved when I was teaching school, and at the end of the year, I would have a whole bunch of Bibles. I would go to a Christian bookstore, 
and buy a bunch of Bibles, and the kids who were Christians who wanted the Bible, I would have their names printed on it and give them out at the end of the year. I mean, nice Bibles with their names engraved on them. And so I did that. Anyway, I was hungry to get out to, to be to fulfill my ministry. I pastored years. At this point, were you feeling a draw to the Ukraine? No, not, knew nothing okay. about Ukraine. So I evangelized coast to coast for two years. And I was invited uh, in Salem, Oregon. There's a place, a Slavic youth with a mission have their Slavic ministries headquarters in Salem, Oregon. Because in about 1895, something like that, the Canadian government built a railroad across southern Canada to bring people from east to west. But not many people lived in western Canada. And so they gave invitation to Ukraine and to that area of the world. They said, these people are used to the cold, and their Ukrainians are good hard workers. So they gave an official invitation to any Ukrainians or Slavic people who could get to Canada. They would give them a free train ticket across Canada and a piece of land in western Canada and seed for the first year to plant crops. Huh. So a vast amount of Ukrainians, Ukraine, uh, Belarusians, Russians, but especially Ukrainians, ended up in western Canada. Well, then over the decades, they began to filter down into Washington and Oregon through the Umqua and Ulamet, uh, Ulamet Valleys down into uh, California. And so now there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Slavic people that are in Sacramento and all through that area of the United States. So that's why the Slavic ministries have their headquarters in Salem, Oregon. So I went to the, I was very, very interested in ministering to Russian Slavic peoples. And so I went to the Slavic, uh, offices of youth with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and I talked to a lady there. I met some people there, and they ended up coming to the church where I was doing the evangelization and had a service. I think they were renting a service, and they had a service there like on a Sunday afternoon. Well, anyway, so through the YWAM in Salem, Oregon, I got, and through the pastor and his wife of that church, especially his wife, her name is Karen, and I hadn't seen her in many, many years. And we saw her in October. She was here in Oklahoma. Hadn't seen her in many years. Her name is Karen McKenzie. Her husband, Ed. Ed passed away two, three years ago. Well, anyway, so Karen said, we need somebody to go to Ukraine to preach a revival. I, she said she and her husband were going to go, but we need somebody to preach the revival. I said, well, I'll go. And what year is this right now? This was 92. It was a 92, okay. Okay, because the Soviet Union broke apart in 91, and things started opening it up in 92. So I said, oh, I'm your person. When I was there preaching, I said, I'm, I'm, let's, let's do it. Well, time came about that fall, and I had, I was, I was in Virginia, just south of, I think, Stanton, Stanton Virginia, just south of Washington, and I got a call, and uh, this Karen said, you want to go? I said, I want to go, but I haven't been. I've used every penny I've had that I've gotten in the offering, offerings, and I was like month after month on the road every night, not returning to Oklahoma. And I said, I, the offerings have not been enough that I can afford a trip there. She said, well, let me see what I can do. So she called a bishop 
in Oklahoma and told her the situation. Philip can go. We need him, but he has no money to go. So he calls me after a service one night. He says, I hear that they need you to go preach a revival in Ukraine. He said, do you want to go? I said, yes. He said, and you don't have any money to go? I said, no. He said, how much do you need? I said, well, to rent a facility, airline fare, and food for a couple of weeks. I need, you know, at least $2,000. He said, you got it. So he approached you. You, he you called didn't me. even, like, you well, weren't, like, raising funds at this point. I, I was just evangelizing. Every night I was preaching it across America. I mean, from California, Oregon, Nevada, uh, Utah, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, everywhere, Ohio, Indiana. So I was in Virginia at that time. And so I said, yes. And so they needed to go immediately. And so I clubbed, the, the next night, it was almost, it was early November. I closed the revival the next night it was supposed to close. And I drove back to Oklahoma, stopped at a church in Indiana where I preached. And anyway, ended three days later, something like that, I ended back up in Tulsa. And a couple of days later, we, I packed my stuff. And my mom got everything washed and packed and flew to Ukraine. Stopped off in Germany uh, for a, a day or two. I met with some church people there and then ended up in Ukraine and preached the revival in Komsomolsk. And uh, what is Komsomolsk called today? Koms- it, well, I, what is well, it, it has a new name. It has a new name. I don't know what I haven't been okay. there in years. Anyway, so that is a good question, though. I'm just trying, I'm, I'm visualizing a map. I'm just trying to figure out where you're at. It's in Cherkasy Oblast. Oblast is like a state or a province. In Russian languages, they're called Oblasty. To make a word plural in Russian or Ukraine, it, in English, you ha- we put an S or an ES on the end of it. Is this the equivalent of like having a parish? Like I'm from Louisiana. Is this like, is that what you're saying? Like this sort of region? Like uh, yeah, it would be like a county, but... Uh, like, like a county? O- is really like a state. Okay. Like the state of Oklahoma, but they're smaller. Okay. My understanding in Ukraine also, there's kind of a region that they identify as ethnically Russian, not Ukrainian. Is this the region? No, or is not, it really, really. not really. Okay. No, I, I can go into that and explain it. But, so anyway, I went in there and on the uh, started on Monday night. And I, we rented a hall it, that was organized before we got there. And I just gave money. Well, anyway, the first night, the hall seated, I want to say six, eight hundred, I forget, and it was jam-packed, and there was no room, and there were people standing, and you have to understand, these people had never heard the Word of God ever in their life. They know nothing about Jesus, that they've been under communism. So, a guy stands up, a minister. So how do they get their attention? Do you pop flyers or something? Yeah. Okay. The advertising was done before we got there. And so the old minister, and see the ministers had just been relieved from, released from the gulags, oh, the concentration God. camps in Siberia. And so they come in, and so I could cry. So one of the old men, old ministers, he makes the announcement, he said, Anybody here who's a Christian, you have to leave because there are lots of people standing who have never heard the name Jesus. And we've got a place upstairs, and you're going to go pray that everybody who's here can get saved. 
So everybody who was, had already were a Christian, they left the building. The few there weren't that many, and so they left and they go upstairs to pray. And so their places, their seats were taken in this big hall uh, by uh, people who knew nothing about God. By the eighth night, I had twelve hundred saved. On the fifth night, which was Friday night, we had a service about the baptism of the Holy Ghost for people to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And that was the only service I didn't preach. A Ukrainian, no, no, a minister from Latvia or Lithuania preached, a young man. And so we go out and we're praying for people to get filled with the Holy Ghost. Fifty people got filled with the Holy Ghost in that service. And I'm there standing all over the place, praying, standing and crying. And I remember, uh, along with the gospel, also Satanism, the occult, came in also really strong with the new freedoms. And so this, and everybody was poor there. Nobody had any money under communism. Everybody was poor. So this woman, a nicely dressed woman, comes up to me. And she said, would you please come and pray for my father? Of course, I didn't speak Russian then. He's demon-possessed. Would you come and cast the demon out of him? And I'm thinking, okay. And so uh, I go over there, and so I talk to this man, and his teeth are tight together. And so I started talking with him, and uh, I started asking him, now the Bible tells us when you pray for the sick, we lay hands on the sick. And, but with demons, casting demons out, Jesus said, no, no, you speak to the demons. You don't lay your hands on those people. You speak to the demons. But I was kind of dumb at that time, and I put my hand on his head. I was praying his hand, my hand on his shoulder, and I, I was just real close to him, and I said, now, say that I love you, Jesus. And he was like, ah, ah. His teeth were grinning. He was just groaning. It's like, and so I remember I put my hand, I guess, on his head, and I rebuked the devil. And I said, come out of him in the name of Jesus. And the demon came out, and the man's mouth instantly loosened. Wow. And he wasn't gritting his teeth or growling her anymore. And his daughter, very attractive young blondish woman, she was just standing with her hands together, like, you know, with her fingers open, like in prayer, because she knew nothing about God, I guess, either. She just knew this demon was in her daddy. And so the man was... Oh, I don't know, maybe 45, 50 probably. No, at least 50 probably. But the moment his, the demon came out of him, or however many demons there might have been, his mouth just loosened. And his face relaxed. And I said, say, I love you, Jesus. Jesus. In Russian, say, I love you, Jesus. And he just had tears begin to flow down his eyes, his cheeks. He said, I love you, Jesus. And he started saying, I love you, Jesus. And his daughter just burst into tears. Burst into tears. Well, anyway, I was going around laying hands on people to have them filled with the Holy Ghost. And I would be getting ready to lay hands on people. And they were already speaking in tongues. They'd already gotten filled before I got around to them. And I remember I went back to the uh, little apartment building. I was sitting, they had a little bitty metal chair, like a little old fold-up metal chair that we would have back 50 years ago, 70 years ago. And I was sitting in this little metal chair in the apartment there where I was at. And I was thinking, Monday, 
when I started this thing, they didn't even know who Jesus was. And at least, and I was pinching the side of my leg above my knee. And I was thinking, I was here. I saw this. At least 50 were filled with the Holy Ghost who Monday didn't even know the name of Jesus. We had to move people out of the, the auditorium set. You know, if you know Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have to go because there's vast amount of people who cannot get into the building. Well, after that night, the, the next day on Saturday, we moved into a bigger hall that seated maybe 1,200. Oh, it was a big hall. And so that all the people could come. Well, after we did that, the mayor of the city was there at the Sunday night service. And this became a part of something that was going to happen later in the years in the future in Kiev. Well, anyway, I saw the mayor. He was there, and government officials, they were there to hear all what's going on with this American preacher and their, this evangelization. The next day, the Orthodox priest in the city accused me of being an American spy and closed down the, the, the evangelization. So the people were crying and crying that next day. It was Monday, and they were crying, saying, what are we going to do? Philip, what are we going to do if you leave? And of course, everything was through an inter interpreter. They will stop us. They will stop all of us. The communists will stop all of it if we don't have an American here. It's like in the days of Rome. It's like Paul was a Roman. It's like you don't touch the Romans, okay? You don't touch them. Paul said, you beat me, you beat us both, and we're Roman citizens, and you send to the prison, prison say, you know, go your way. Uh-uh. You let the city, the mayor, the people of the city come and, and apologize to us before we leave the city because I, I'm a Roman. I have authority. Well, that's the way Americans were so treated. They, so they felt like they had some leniency and some freedom to preach the gospel since there was an American. Yeah, because it was American doing the preaching. Okay. And so they said, if you leave, we're destroyed. The communists, will, they will just stop all of this. So it put a lot of pressure on me. I went there for 13 days. And so to make a call out of Ukraine at that time, Oh, that part of the country. Anyway, you had to call the KGB and make an appointment for the next day. The next day, the KGB would call you back and with all their listening devices and say, okay, your call is ready. So we contacted the KGB and made a request for them to call my mom the next day that I could call my mom. So I, uh, the next day, I don't know, around lunchtime, maybe after lunch. KGB calls, says, your line is ready, you can call America, because they were listening in. So I called my mom, and I told what happened. I said, 1,200 people have gotten saved, a bunch of people have gotten filled, at least 50 got filled with the Holy Ghost, but they closed this down. They closed the evangelization, and the people are crying and begging and begging for me to stay, or they don't know what will happen if I leave. I'm the only American here. And so I said, I'm staying in Ukraine. I'm not leaving. And I told my mom, my mom knew when I left, and she and my dad, we went, they took me to the airport when I was flying out. And she cried and cried and cried till I got on the plane. And she later told me, she said, I knew you weren't coming back. I knew you were you were gone from America for good. And I just kind of lost my son to the other side of the world. And uh, so I felt that before I left. 
And I had a whole year of evangelization. That, that takes a lot of bravery, I feel like, from a mother's point of view to let go of her son like that and encourage you to go and fulfill the calling that God had. Well, she, was, she wasn't encouraging. She was just crying and crying and crying. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, anyway, I felt, before I left, I'm a musician, pianist, singer. And uh, so I had a whole year of evangelization, literally. Every week was booked from coast to coast for an entire year. And I left the schedule and the phone numbers of every church in every town and every state on top of my piano at home. And so when I called my mom that day, I said, the list of every church for the entire year, hundreds of services, I think that year I probably preached 250 times maybe before I left. I said, call every pastor in every state cancel my entire year I'm staying in Ukraine and tell the pastors I'm sorry but I'm staying in Ukraine what's going on here is really big and so instead of 13 days it ended up being uh, 26 years and uh, so uh, that's how I stayed there that's how and of course there are many 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 stories and uh, so I ended up getting kicked out of Komsomolsk and uh, like right after the phone call, no, like oh no, or? no, it was a month later. See, no, it was uh, January. I got kicked out of Komsomos, ended up, I had to get to, and people didn't know I was being kicked out. And so I went to a train station, but I talked to a guy who could speak a little bit of English to explain to him, I'm being kicked out, and I need. Some, I know nobody in Kiev. I don't know anything what to do. But I'll, I'll be on a train going to Kiev. He says, okay. He says, I have family in Kiev. And uh, my sister, my brother's sister-in-law, my wife's uh, sister and her husband live in Kiev. He says, what I'll do? He says, if I had money, nobody had money. The Soviet Union had collapsed. I remember the food in, in Komsomolsk. The bazaar, there was no food, rotten potatoes, nothing for people to eat. Soviet Union had collapsed. The food had collapsed. Everything had collapsed. And so he, he said, if I had a way, I could take a, a bus to Kiev and I could meet you there. And he told me where a hotel I could stay. So I gave him money to buy a bus ticket. And I went on the train and to Kiev. And the next day, he got there on a bus and met me, and his brother-in-law came, and I moved to their house, excuse me, to their apartment. And I lived with them for several months and started doing street work there. Ended up organizing a church, this, a huge cathedral church now. And I started working in schools. Thousands and thousands of people got saved in the schools. I worked in 25 schools in Kiev. And thousands and thousands of students got saved. I mean, it was like an open door. Then, about a year later, of all the working schools, the government came in and says, no, can't do preaching in schools anymore. We want to be like America. America does not allow uh, uh, preaching in schools, and so they cut all the preaching off in the schools. And But anyway, I'd already started organizing churches and and I would, at that time, I remember I was pastoring three churches in Kiev. 
one in the Sunday morning, one Sunday afternoon, one Sunday evening. And then every night of the week, I was preaching somewhere different. And this went on for years like that. I would organize a church, and I would pastor everything till I found somebody to be a pastor and set them up with pastoring in Pentecostal Union churches, in non-Pentecostal Union, in, in unregistered churches anyway. So uh, that's how it got started. And I organized one church where Masha got saved in that church there in Kiev. And that particular church I stayed with the whole time. And at that time we were having service there on Sunday afternoon. And I organized a church in a town called um, Bravery. 120,000 people just on, I was living on the east side of Kiev. And uh, so uh, it was a town, over about 120,000 people that was right there. And I was pastoring there on Sunday morning. It was full every Sunday morning. And then I would go, they would feed me at one of the houses, one of the families. And they'd take me to Kiev. I would preach there and then go to the other side of Kiev and preach on Sunday evenings. And then every night, different places, every single night. So the church there... It's called Christ Cathedral Church, and I uh, uh, stayed with that. And uh, well, then probably how long did it take you to learn the language? Uh, well, I'm still learning. I mean, uh. <laughs> but it didn't take a few years. I was still young, could learn, and but I was too busy preaching, organizing churches, and building church facilities and buying buildings to have time to go to school. So I would just learn, and we would be walking, the young people, we would walk to church, and they, they would say, okay, they would point to something, go, Philip, in English, you know, okay, this What's is that? a sidewalk, okay, tratuar, tree, okay, everything, they would teach me, the sun, sunset, moon, moon, they would teach me, they would point to things, and that was how I learned through the young people teaching me. Well, um, in 93... September of 1993, uh, it was. I was paying rent, and I thought, man, I need to buy an apartment here. No, I rented. Me, I rented an apartment. I had a three-room apartment, and then over there, you don't have like our American style. You don't have a living room, a kitchen, and bedrooms. No, it's very small. Everything is compact, so you would have a one-room apartment, a two-room apartment, or a three-room. So one of those rooms would be your your living room, your bedroom. It's all everything would fold up, and that's the way you would have it. And your kitchen is just like a, a part of that room, just about very very small. So I rented a three room apartment. That way I could have evening services there for young people and classes. And besides renting facilities where <clears throat> we had services. Well, I came home from church. Uh, the young people, would, actually the adults, they would always walk me from where I was at, where we were having service, home. Well, less than a mile, usually. And we would have a wonderful time on the streets. Even in the snow, the, the families, they would walk me home. They didn't want anything to happen to me. And so I would have 10, 15, 20 people every, t every service walk me home to keep me safe, that nobody would kill this American. Well, anyway... I got home one Sunday night, and one or two of the uh, Ukrainian young men, teenagers, were with me. And a man was there waiting for me. He said, 
Our building took a vote. We, we do not want an American living in this building. We've contacted the KG, the militia, the militia, and they will be here to remove you, and you'll be removed from the country tomorrow. Wow. Um, what, what year was this? This was 93. 93, okay. This was 93. Communism was still real strong then. And so I thought, oh, no. So I had my own home phone. In Kiev, I didn't have to call the KGB to get a line out, I don't think. Anyway, I got a hold of my mom, and I told her what's happened, what had happened. That they were, I was being, the militia would be there the next day to remove me. And I said, I have no idea, but you'll probably see me soon. And I said, but I have found out, I told the lady who I rent this apartment from, the situation. She said, well, we have just passed a new law in our parliament because the government owned all the houses, all the houses, all the apartments. The government owned everything. Total government control. Socialism, communism. Communism is the ultimate of socialism. Far left wing. Well, anyway, she said, if you owned the apartment, if it, the apartment had been privatized, which we have already privatized our apartment that you rented from, we did that the last few months, they couldn't remove you if you owned the apartment. So I told my mom that. I said, if, if some, it takes six months to buy an apartment here with all the government, it takes a long time. But I said, if somehow I had money, uh, I could buy this apartment. And I had already negotiated to buy the apartment. The family wanted $45,000 for the apartment, American dollars. And I had negotiated down to 30000 not having any, any idea where I would get $30,000 to buy that apartment. And so finally they said, okay, you can buy, because things kept going wrong with the apartment. The first two days I was there, it was flooded from upstairs, and they had wallpaper on the walls, and all the wallpaper was coming down on the floors, and, and so I would call the people, like, this is your apartment. And so they got so, I mean, the bed broke down, and because and everything was old, and so they finally, okay, we're frustrated. They were Jewish people. And all of them were immigrating, the grandma, the, the family, the children, they were all immigrating to Israel. And they needed money to go to Israel. So she said, if you want a penny less than, if you are going to, you want to give us a penny less than $30,000, just get out. We'll sell it to somebody else. I said, okay. And I talked to real estate people and they said, yeah, $30,000 is a fair price for that. So I told my mom, I'd already done that negotiation of the last couple weeks before, finished that out, took a while. So I said, if somehow I had $30,000 here that I could buy this apartment from this Jewish family, her name was Sophia, Sophia, Sophia huh? Sophia. Her name was Sophia. And so I said, if I had $30,000, I don't know how I would do it because it takes six months to buy an apartment, but the KGB and the militia couldn't come and get me tomorrow. Well, word got around. And somebody called Brother David Green from church here. And David said, where do I send the money? And so I sent back, I talked to Sophia. She said, it has to go to Israel because we've got to buy something to live in Israel. So David, the next day, transferred $30,000 to an account in Israel. In uh, Haifa. Haifa. It was in Haifa. It's northern Israel along the coast. And so, and the and it was illegal to do documents, but the stock exchange 
had just opened in Kiev. And so the lady says, if you had that money, could sent, be sent to Israel. I have a friend, they opened the stock exchange a month or a couple months ago in Kiev, and they have the authority there to do a document that you could buy this. You wouldn't have to wait six months. So she contacted that guy. David sent the money that next day to Haifa, to a bank in Haifa. It was, concern, it was confirmed in Kiev. The next morning, I got up and I left so that the militia couldn't find me. I hid out. And then the next day... Yeah, like it, other friends? That no, I was just on the or? street. Just on the street. Oh, just on the street. And I came back at night time. Okay? So, to that apartment at night. Snuck in. So uh, the next morning, early the next morning, I met Sophia. We went to the stock exchange and did the document, and I owned an apartment in one day. It happened in one day. It was an impossibility. It was an impossibility. But in one day, because of the generosity of Brother David Green and his family, I owned that apartment, and I lived in that apartment for all these years. And so... uh, Satan was really trying to get you out of the so way, they but God did didn't let it. <laughs> not, they didn't, they couldn't get me because I owned the apartment. So, and then I went on to organize the hospice program for Ukraine. I had, I talked to my mom again. I said, okay, I go to the hospital every week and I pray for people. And there's people who have, there are people who have cancer and they're dying in terrible, terrible pain. And I need a hospice program. Well, she found out. She contacted people and found out St. Christopher's Hospice in London. And she gave me the number, and I called. And it turned out that's where the hospice program for the whole world started, in St. Christopher's in London. Well, I invited them over, and they would come and send a doctor, Steve Dyer. He was the one who would come. And we organized the hospice program for Ukraine for the entire country because people were dying by the thousands of cancer from radiation from Chernobyl. So I organized Prison Fellowship International and 19,000 churches joined Prison Fellowship International. I, I organized uh, Life International, the largest Protestant pro-life organization in the world. I had the first conference in Ukraine, the Soviet Union, first conference in the Soviet Union. Had people from 20 countries come. I, I directed and uh, Heartbeat International and uh, what did I just say? Uh, Life International. So Life International is Protestant. Heartbeat International is Catholic. So they, they brought their people from every country. Had 163 people who came to that meeting. We had it at a, like a campground, nice resort area. Masha led the music in three languages, English, Russian, uh, Ukrainian. Christian, our little Christian, was, uh, what year was that? 2005. 2005. He was two years old. He was the drummer for the program. Christian started playing drums on the stage at our church when he was a year, eight, 18 months. Year, year and a half, he started playing the drums on the stage, so he was the drummer, and people would just be vicious, like, and I wouldn't let him use sticks, because he was so little, and I was afraid he would fall off the chair, and one of those sticks would jab him, so what I, how old again? A year and eight months, a year and six months, a year and a half. And he was able to play the drums? Mm -hmm. So what we did, I would buy 
uh, use, I would let him use empty water bottles, like little water bottles, and he would play with those water bottles so that he wouldn't fall off of that chair and a stick stab him and get hurt. Yeah. I mean, people would come into our church there in Kiev over the years, and they would say, I've never seen this in my life. And they would video, well, take, take the videos right back yeah. to America. Well, you've heard him play. Yeah. yeah he's the <coughs> head drummer for here, for Southern Nazarene University. That's incredible. Anyway, so we organized Life International and Heartbeat International for Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. And so we started organizing chapters of pro-life movements all over Eastern Europe. I'm still the founder of Life International for Eastern Europe. My name is on the documents for Life International for that part of the world. I had, whenever we came back to America, my gallbladder went out. We had to go to the hospital. What year was this? 2018. We had no insurance. Insurance didn't kick in immediately when I started teaching school. Had to go to the hospital, and then she had to go to the hospital, and bang, we had ten, fifteen thousand dollars expense. Bang, it's like no way to pay it. And so I contacted, sent a letter, and called St. Christopher's, St. Anthony's, excuse me, it was St. Anthony's Hospital here in Oklahoma City. Called St. Anthony's and sent them an official letter that I, now St. Anthony's Catholic, okay, and I said through my work. Heartbeat International, the international program for the Catholic Church was organized in Moscow through me. I helped the Catholic Church to the very end stopping abortions. And I said, is there any way you can help me? Well, they checked on everything, sent me a letter, a letter to the hospital. Everything, every bill is free. As a matter of fact, till the end of the year, if you need to go, or anybody in your family, we checked and you did that for Russia organize the anti-abortion movement for the Catholic Church in Russia. Anything you need is paid for for the rest of the year. And it came on Christmas Eve. And the letter came from St. Anthony's in St. Louis, I think is their headquarters, came on Christmas Eve. We had a, the American, Christ, American mm-hmm. Christmas. And so uh, that was how I ended up with an apartment to live in. And then uh, Brother David helped out to the... And because I had organized all of those things, and I had brought through an organization in Tulsa vast amounts of medicine into Ukraine, half a million dollars worth of medicine, and give them. And there were a couple times the government would come to me and say, okay, we have a person who has a bad eye. I think it was three times. And we need a glass eye. We need a fake eye purchase. So I would purchase the glass eye. We had one guy in Siberia had sent a letter, a veteran, a Soviet Union veteran, to Kiev. He was a Ukrainian, and he was blind. He lost his eyes. He needed surgery, and they wouldn't do anything in Siberia. And so the government came to because they knew I wanted land to build a church. They said, okay, you've done all of these things. If you will do this one more thing, we will give you land to build a church on. It's like, okay, what is that thing? We have a guy who sent us a letter from Siberia. He's blind, and we need him brought to Kiev, and we need somebody to buy two glass eyes to replace the glaucoma that destroyed his eyes. 
He said, you got it. So I had a really good doctor friend of mine who, had, who was an atheist. His name is Sasha. He got saved. He worked with the uh, emergency team for the Soviet Union. He was a, a soldier. He'd been a soldier. He was in the army? I get an army or army uh, in St. Petersburg. Petersburg. They had their medical institute where they trained their doctors in the military. Well, he served on the, the emergency team for the military and for example when a, a huge earthquake hit Armenia and 25,000 people were killed he was on the first plane in there and he told me he said the first three or four hours he did 23 tracheotomies for people who were choking to death. He would just go down the hall, cut their throat, put a tube in, seal it up and he said, the nurses were saying, this is a record. This has never been done in history. He said, he said, this is what we do. He saved so many lives. Well, he had gotten saved. I persuaded him that there is a God. He got saved, filled with the Holy Ghost. So anyway, I told Sasha, I can get the land if you can go to Siberia. He said, I'll go. So I bought him a ticket. He goes to Siberia, flies over there. I don't remember what town, city it was now. And he takes a bus, and then he has to walk to this guy's house in this village. And he finds him. He says, I'm here from Kiev, the Kiev government, and an American friend of mine has sent me here to Siberia to bring you back to Kiev. And we're going to do the surgeries. The Americans paid for your surgeries to get for your eyes. And so they bring him back. He, Sasha brings him back to Kiev, and they saved one of his eyes. And so I, I bought a glass eye for just one eye. And he was, I know, at least the second person for the government I bought an eye for and paid for the surgery. Or they would do the surgery. I just had to buy the eye. So I did that kind of stuff for a long time. So they said, if you'll do that, we will give you land. So they gave me land. And I had been praying and praying and praying for land close to the subway. And I didn't realize there's a, the land right smack next to the subway it's called a green zone. It's a park zone. And I was praying for God to give us land in that green zone. Well, that was illegal. Well, it turned out. I took our church over there. We just walked. Oh, it's like two blocks from where we were having services in a uh, theater because there were no church buildings to rent or anything like that. So we walked over there and we prayed. I said, I want this land. I want us to pray that God give us this land for a church. So we prayed, and then I found out it's against the law for you for them to give park land. But there was land straight across the subway that we could see. And I met with a guy from the director of a hospital. His name is Anatoly Vronin, big-time alcoholic. Anyway, I had taught, he knew that I was looking for land. He said, well, I said, he said, well, he was interested. I'd helped the hospital so much. He could give some land. He said, I've got this little plot of land right here. It was kind of a small area to build a small church. And I looked around, walked around the hospital complex, you know, several buildings. And I said, over there, I told him, I said, over there, there is land big enough to build a nice church. And he, he, he has plans. And where was this at again? In Kiev. In Kiev. Kiev hospital number... Two, hospital number two. And I said, but I said, and I knew he was going to say no. And I said, I know you have the architectural plans of building this like three-story big giant building. It's 
a kitchen and complex to feed everybody in the hospital. I said, but if you would turn that building around the other way and build it sideways, there would be enough land between that building and the subway that I could build a church there. Now I knew the answer is no. I says, okay. I said, God, I've got my land. You gave me the land next to the subway, next smack dab next to the subway. And, and on, on one subway, we're right between, halfway between two subway stations. And on one subway, all of the tramways for all of Kiev come in. And at the other side, the buses from all over Kiev come in. It's like everybody in that three million people city had access to our church through transportation. Wow. It was a location that was planned long time before there was a city of Kiev, probably. And so we got the land for free. And, and Masha, is this the church that you went to? Yes. Okay. And she was our praise, uh, praise team leader for 23 years. She led the worship for 23 years. Is that how y'all met? You were a praise leader, and that's how yeah, you met her? Yeah, that was that. Uh, no. That's another story. No. Look, I met her. I was invited. I was preaching everywhere, organizing churches, and all these people were getting saved. Well, there was a Bible school that had been organized. What was the Bible school? St. James. Uh, James Bible College. Through some people who had been kicked out, of, had left Ukraine before World War II. And they'd come back and organize St. James Bible College. So I was friends with the directors and the people. and So I would go over there to classes and help out what I could. And so there was a guy by the name of Velodia. I met him as a student. And he wanted me, because I already had organized a church there. We had services in the Kinatatra Revist movie theater. We had services. It was just a block from the a subway station. So we had services there. He says, I've got a, a community choir. I want you to meet and have them come and sing for your church. I said, well, Lord, I have no time to go listen to a choir. And he kept after me for two or three weeks. And so one, and I kept saying, no, I just, I'm, every night I'm preaching, I just have no time. So he comes to one of the su Sunday afternoon services. He'd been there before. He comes right at the end of the service. He says, Philip, I said, I know, I know what you want. I said, okay, 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 I'll go. And so on Tuesday night, in the area of Kiev, close, just north of downtown, was Kontraktova Ploshida. Mm -hmm. This area called Kontraktova Square. Ploshida is the word for square in Russia. So at Kontraktova Ploshida, what was the building that was the building where you were having? It was, a, it was called Slavutich, uh, and it was like a, what they called a... House of Culture? Uh, Don Culture. Yeah, yeah, like a place where they would do different concerts and... Music, dance, t teaching young people stuff. So I went there to listen to this choir and have them possibly come and sing at our church. Okay, I've been talking. You tell what happened. She was, she so was there. So I was the youngest member there. My mom, she sang in that choir, and so I would always go with her and sing. And... Um, one day she said, we'll have guests coming to listen to us, and so let's go. And I came with her, and here two guys come in, one very tall and one much shorter. And I thought, oh, that's probably an American that's very tall, and that's the, the Ukrainian tall, guy. guy yeah. uh, <laughs> anyway, it was just backwards. The and short guy was the American, <laughs> the tall guy, Volodya, was the, the handsome Ukrainian guy. You know? And uh, anyway... 
So that's how we saw each other the first time. And then Philip invited our whole choir to come and sing at the service. And he gave us Christian music like Amazing Grace and How, how Great, great, how are, great no. They Are. And Things that have already translated We didn't know any of those songs, but we learned them in Russian, I believe. And that's when we came and we sang a few of those songs. And then at the end of service, Philip asked if anybody wanted to invite Jesus. No, I preached after they sang. Yeah. And after he finished preaching, he asked if anybody wanted to invite Jesus in their hearts. So the whole choir went and prayed. But then when everything was over and I came home, something inside of me, and I knew nothing about God. And then something inside <coughs> of me, which now I know it was Holy Spirit, was calling me back. And I was pretty shy. And I was like, I don't want to go by myself, but I want to go. So I called all my friends from my school. Nobody wanted to go with me. And then I also had another friend. Uh, we went, uh, we did sailing together. I was in the sail, sailing club for a long time. Masha was national yachting champion for Ukraine. National champion. Wow. And <laughs> so, she turned it down to marry me and gave it up. They won, us, they won in Argentina. They won silver medal at the Olympics. And she gave it up to me. I mean, How often did you regret this? <laughs> I, I don't regret it. <laughs> I told her, do not. I said, you have to make this decision to follow music. Because if I tell you to not do it, it, could, it would be all, me. You have to make the decision. All my, com all my competition, all my races were on Saturday and Sundays. And so I had to, to, to choose God or sport. And so I came to the to, to made, I made a decision that I give it up because God is important for me. And um, so Marina, my friend, she came back. She went with me to service, <laughs> and I guess we prayed again. Mm -hmm. And so ever since then, I stayed. She didn't, but I did. And she she would come, like, we would invite her every once in a while to our Christmas musicals, and she would come with me, And but she didn't come to church, like, since then, we, I stayed in church and started doing um, worship, I guess, in 94, leading in 95. Yeah, 95. I made a praising director in 95. When I had, I came down with salmonella poisoning, I almost died in the hospital. They gave me up for dead. And my fever was 105 in the hospital oh, wow. for three days. And I couldn't walk. I was dying. Ten doctors were working on me, and finally two doctors came, and they said, gangrene has set up in your stomach. We have to cut you open and get it out, or you are going to die. And my body, now, I've been a minister all these years, pastored so many years. How old were you at this point? I was 35. 35. Well, I went there when I was 35. This was probably 95. It was, I was 37 by this time. Well, anyway... I've been to hospitals many times when people are dying, their bodies are all swelling up, and they have to take the respirator off. And you, I'm there with the families. I've seen it. <coughs> and I'm looking at myself in that reanimacia. Uh, uh, in Russia, it's called reanimacia, which is intensive care. And I was looking at myself. I was like, now nah, it's me. It's my body all swelling up. I'm the one dying. And so... These two head doctors, and this is the largest, most famous hospital in Ukraine called uh, October Hospital from the October Revolution. And they said, 
we had to cut the oath. And I said, no, I'm not going to let you. And they argued and argued. They said, you do not understand. And by this time, I was speaking to them in a rush. This was two years later. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm not going to let you cut me open. If I die, I die. Either God heals me or I die. I'm not going to let you cut me open. So they said, your blood is on your own head and stormed out of the room. And I'm laying. And I remember I turned my head to the window. And I said, Lord, I just want you to know one thing. If I live or if I die, I love you the same. I love you the same. Well, there was a nurse who was there from Colorado, from uh, right north of Denver, who was there helping with my ministry. A girl named Sharon Bell. Bell Sharon Bell. She, Why were you so against surgery, by the way? <laughs> you don't want Ukraine, to have a surgery in Ukraine? In Ukraine. <laughs> that surgery? No. No. Okay. It's like, so it, and they had, no, they had good doctors there, but it was just like, no, I'm not going to let it happen. I will live or die on God, not, not going to have the surgery. So I turned to the window and I said, Lord, if I live or if I die, I love you the same. And things are so bad. The head of man in a bed next to me had tuberculosis. One night he threw up on the floor and I pressed a button. This guy's tuberculosis throws up all the floor between our beds. We were in the room by ourselves. So a nurse comes and they, oh yeah, he threw up. So they give him a shot to put him back to sleep. Didn't even clean it up. This is Ukraine, okay? Back at that time. So you understand why I'm not going to let him cut me open. Because I'd probably not come out maybe from the, I was almost dead anyway. So at the end of the third day, Dr. Sasha, who I told you about, he comes in the room and he has this nurse, Sharon Bell. And they said, people, this, it was a Sunday. He said, people from the church have come to pray for you. And we're going to stand you up next to the window and hold you. And you can look out the window and when they see your face, They'll know to pray. And it was just almost on second or third floor. Old building. So they get me up out of the bed and they hold me up. And I'm looking out the window. And Masha was in that group. There were probably 20 or so people there. And when they saw me, they joined hands and they prayed. Instantly God healed me. Instantly God healed me. You just felt your strength come back? No. My fever was 105. It went down to normal within an hour or two. And so without 105 fever, you feel a lot stronger. And so they came in, they took, it's like, he's got no temperature. He's got no fever. And it's like two days later, I've been two days without a fever. My body swelling was going down. And I told Sasha, I want to go home and hire somebody to feed me every day. And the doctors in the hospital's like, you're insane. We're going to put you... You've got two weeks at least to survive this thing. We're going to move you out of intensive care, you know, in a few days, and you've got a minimum of two weeks. And I argued, Sasha argued with him. No, he wants to go home. I'll hire somebody, and I will be his personal physician every day. And so that's what happened. So a doctor who had a car, and Dr. Sasha, they drove me home, hired a lady from our church named Larissa. Sasha was the atheist that came to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About, was he saved at this time? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, he became our church, uh, what do you call it, the uh, administrator. Because there they have a system. You have a pastor, and you have an administrator for the government that takes care of all the finances. So Sasha was my administrator for 30 years. And uh, 
So I was home for about two weeks till I got strong enough and got on an airplane and flew to America for five weeks and uh, came and back. And you put me in. And so, and yes. And so when I left, I put her as praise team director. I took myself out. I was like, you're the praise team director, not me. And so she stayed praise team director for 23 years. And so seven years after she got saved, we got married. And we had two children, Chris John and Cosette. How old were you at the time? When we got married? Yeah. I was 21. 21. Yeah. And I remember going to her, her dad and mom. And I said, without your parents' permission, no wedding. We will only do it with the favor of your parents. And, so, and her mom and dad, they were separated at the time, weren't still together. So I went to her dad, Vitaly. He says, oh, we were praying you would marry, you would take our daughter to marry. And I, so I tell Mosh, I don't, through the window, it's like, one down, one down. So then I met with his, her mother in a different place. And she said, oh, Vitaly, I've been praying that you would, you and Masha would get married, that you would marry her. And so I go to the window, it's like, Masha's down walking, pacing back and forth in front of the building. And so it's like, we got it. And, and then I told, said, and also my parents have to agree. And so I called my, called my mom and dad. I said, now, you've never seen Masha. But what we're going to do, we're going to fast three days. You and dad and I, we're going to fast three days. And if after three days of prayer and fasting, if you feel any check from God, I want you to tell me. And so I want God's approval. So after three days, I called them back. And they say, no, we feel that this is from God. And I said, well, I've felt it for a long time. So I said, okay. So we got married. And uh, what was the, if you can pick pinpoint a time, what was like the first day that you're like, you felt that there was something more when you were looking at her? Like, It was when she was younger. And one day I was looking at her and I said, she, she would, we had praise teams and she would go to a service helping another we were helping another church with their praise team i loaned some of our people and so three of our our girls would go there and they had meetings at seven o'clock every morning and i would say now mosh you can't go every morning at seven because the rules were you don't come to morning prayer you do not sing on the praise team here in america you can't even get people to be on time for for, <laughs> for praise team rehearsal let alone you come every morning seven o'clock and she would have to come an hour to the morning prayer one way from the north part of town. And so I would say, Mosh, you can't, I forbid you to spend so many days. You cannot do it. I mean, that she was all wrapped up in worshiping God. People were hungry for God back then, the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. And so she really loved God. She was really pretty. So I said, okay, God, this is the girl I want for my wife. And I can't tell. She's too young. I can't talk to her about it now. And so, three years later, I told her. I was, I was like her father. And I said, we need to change our relationship because I don't feel I can live without you. Because we talk on the phone every single day. We talk, we talk. And I think we need to change our relationship to something more serious. That I'm not your father figure, your pastor. And she thought I was insane. <laughs> She thought, I was, she thought I was totally insane. It's like, you're my father. No way. I could, couldn't do that. So then, so then she refused to talk to me for three days. Three days she refused to talk to me. And then 
a year, year and a half, two years later, I asked her the same question. She said, I could never, ever kiss you. No, never. It could never happen. Ouch. Yeah. Man. And I thought, well. And so uh, then later on, she changed her mind. And what made you change your mind? Well, whenever I imagine that one day somebody else will be there for him and we will never be able to have, you know, to see each other that every closeness. day. Yeah. And so I realized that um, I couldn't live without him. It's like you, you love a person not because you do the same things and you like the same things, which is that is important, but... You, that's compatibility. compatibility. But when you realize that you can't live without that person, that's when you know that you love that person that much. And so, uh, so we changed just, our relationship. God, God changed me. It's only God. And so we got married November 14th. And your daughter and son wouldn't be here. <laughs> and that's why Cosette is named Cosette. Are you familiar with the musical... Les Miserables. Yeah, I love that. What happened? Who was Cosette? Uh, she was the one that got spurned by. Uh, no, uh, she was the one who got raised by Jean Valjean. Okay, I thought she had the song. Um, I can almost, I can hear the tune. I just can't remember the words right now. Okay, well, Cosette was young, and Jean Valjean raises her, mm -hmm. and so because that's I had, right, she was the prostitute's daughter. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So okay. I basically had kind of raised her because her family was totally dysfunctional family. Her mom lived in one place, her father in another, and so she lived with her mom. And so I told her, I said, in remembrance that I was for a long period, for years in your life, I was a father figure helping to raise you, giving you advice about boyfriends, about everything. And now, of course, with that, you know, story, you know, he doesn't marry Cosette. But anyway, I married her, so I said, well, let's name our daughter Cosette if we have a daughter. And so our son, Christian, I, I picked our name Christian. But <clears throat> what we did, we had, we had two names, Christian and Cosette. And so we put them up on the board, up on the wall. And so whenever the babies, whenever Christian got old enough, that ultrasound could tell if it was a boy or a girl, it's like, it will be Christian. And I had chosen the Germanic form of, instead of Christian, Christian. And I spelled it with a Y-A-N, any, like Christ, Jan, like, it's kind of like uh, from Sweden, except they use a J instead of a Y. And I thought, well, when we go back to America someday, they need to know how to spell his name. And a Y makes more sense than the J. So his name is spelled Chris. Christ and Y A N, and so and his one job he knows in his whole life he has one thing that's more important than anything, and that is to be a Christian. And so we gave him the name Christian, and then I chose Cosette for our daughter, and so that's where the two names came from of our children. <coughs> so I guess that's probably enough. The war. We moved in two thousand eighteen. And God, I had 17 dreams that we had to move. I told Masha when Christian was five, before he started school, first grade, in America we have a school system, and I was a school teacher, 
the grades really only count 9th through 12th grade to depend upon where you're going to go to university, whatever, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. Before then, before then, it doesn't matter where our kids go to school. But if we're still in Ukraine and Christian is going into the ninth grade, we will need to move to America. America. And I was thinking, oh, the rapture will take place before then. It will never happen. But before ninth grade, we came here and I tried to get a job teaching school. And I was getting my a teacher's license renewed and it didn't work out. And we flew back to Ukraine. And then ended up moving the next year. And then I didn't understand that after ninth grade, the schools there just go through the 11th grade. And then after ninth grade, you go to specialty schools. If your specialty is math or science or medicine or English or whatever or music, after ninth grade, you go to a specialty school. And so the kids that Christian grew up with they were going to all different schools, and I didn't realize it was going to happen. And so it was the perfect time. After ninth grade there, we moved here, and then he started school here at 10th grade instead of ninth, and we transferred his grades. He, uh, he and Cosette were in one of the top schools in Ukraine academically. It was two hours of homework every night and two or three times out on weekends. There was no break. It was homework, homework, homework. And he sang in the, the Kiev boys' choir. There were more than one, there were two or three boys' choir, but uh, Dviznochik was the best choir in U Ukraine. Have you heard of the Vienna boys' choir? Most people have. Who don't, or in, anyway, so he was in Dviznochik boys' choir. Yeah, and, Trans-Siberian Orchestra used them. Okay, well, five years he was in that choir when we pulled him out because he wanted to play soccer. So we put him in soccer, and so... That's kind of the story. We, we moved our stuff. God, God gave me 17 dreams. I had people met me from our church. Please felt just go take a break. Take a break for a few months and come back. It's like, no, God is moving us. I said, if God appears to me or if God speaks to me with an audible voice, I will stay. If not, I have to leave. My, I've done, I've organized every humanitarian program in existence for this country. I have Christ Cathedral. We have four or 5,000 people in our church building every week. I've done everything in this country that's possible to do. It's time for me to go. A child could operate this church. The financial system is so well organized. And people kept meeting with me and asking me. And, and uh, I had 17 dreams. And every dream was like, it was. I had to leave Ukraine. A, a jet, like a 747 jet would land next to the airport and we would walk out the door and fly to 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 America. Everything it's like God says, no, you have to it's time to come back to America. It made no sense. I had everything. It's like people came from all over that part of the world for my council. It's like government people it's like you were it very made, well established. You know, it made well no sense. Everybody in that part of the world knew who I was. I had a, a guy once came from over by uh, Hungary, on the Ukraine, Ukraine side of the border. He comes to my office. My secretary calls. He says, some man is here. He says, I came. I want a double portion of your spirit. It's like, oh. He said, why? You want to be famous? I said, it's not what it's all cut out to be. And so he said, no, I want a double portion of your spirit. And so I said, I'll tell you what. I will lay hands on 
You, and I'll ask God to bless you, but if it's for the wrong reason, no, it's not going to happen because you're craving. You see me on TV or on wherever. I said, it's not, it's not what it's about. It's not about fame. So it made no sense to leave Ukraine. It's like you've reached the top. But I would tell Masha again and again, we spent a lot of time crying. It's like, I was scared. I had no job. What am I going to do in America? <coughs> and, and I would tell this phrase again and again, just because it doesn't make any sense now doesn't mean that it won't make sense later. Just because it makes no sense leaving, it makes no sense leaving. Our kids were born here. They grew up here. Doesn't mean that it won't make sense later. When we get back here, I get this job in Oklahoma City in music. I only entered, only interested in teaching vocal music. And so then we get back here, and co and my gallbladder went out the first week. My gallbladder went out. You got sick too, right? Yeah. And so had to have my gall, and the gallbladder surgery didn't take place till till January. And I would lay on my floor every morning at school and just cry, just cry and call pastors. Please pray for me. Please pray. And so uh, I got over that, and I jumped over a fence, a six-foot fence, to get a soccer ball for my son and broke my wrist. My hand was up on top of my arm, and, I had to have, and my thumb was sticking out this way at the base of the thumb. And so they reset it. Oh, did you get the ball? Yeah. yeah. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Mission accomplished. And so two, had to have two surgeries to get, they set the arm. And then I remember waking up from the anesthesia and Masha's there. And I hear the doctor saying, well, this time we're going to give him such and such anesthesia. And I opened my eyes. He said, I asked, I said, you're going to do this again? He said, you're awake? I said, yes. What's wrong? He said, we took x-rays, and it's still not set right. We've got to put you back out and do it again. So they, I said, and I told Masha on the first, I said, go. You don't want to see, you know, any of this. So they did it again, and then my head was hurting bad after two times anesthesia. It hurt worse than the arm. And so then I had to have a big surgeon, so I've got a plate in my arm with ten screws holding my arm, right arm together, and I'm a pianist. And so they had the top specialists for the Integris hospitals. Their top specialists for bones because I'm a pianist. And it was here in my right hand. And the surgeon went well. And within a few days after the surgery, I could push down and make chords, make notes with my right. I couldn't move my fingers. but So got through that. And then COVID hit. And then the war in Ukraine. And if we were still there when COVID hit, there would have been no way we could have stayed. God knew COVID was coming. He knew COVID was coming and war in Ukraine was coming. I had warned the people through a prophecy called the Azovan Prophecy. Millions of people have seen it around the world. And so I had done everything. And I didn't know that, war, that COVID was going to hit and then war was going to hit. And so God got us out just before that. And we were able to bring some of our first, most stuff we gave away. We lost everything. But some things that were very important. I told Masha that, that our children were born in Ukraine. All of their friends are there. And if we just walk out with the clothes on our back, 
they could end up being bitter against God. And so we're going to have to borrow money to get out. And it ended up being over $16,000. We brought their beds and brought stuff out. And so they had the things they grew up with around them. We still have the debt today. We're paying every month on this debt. But our kids, God put us in this church and uh, God established us here in Oklahoma City. And so we brought the things out that we needed, a little bit of furniture, a few things. And plus I had over a thousand books and I wasn't interested in leaving my books. And so we brought all the books in five solid oak bookcases. And so we have the things. If we had not come out, when we came out, I got the job. We, I worked a year. COVID hits. We would have lost every single thing we owned. And so we did bring out the things that were necessary. And our children were not bitter about losing everything. So God brought us here to this church brought us to America. And so I it was hard. We cried and cried a lot the first year or two here. We missed Ukraine. She hasn't seen her mom in almost in five and a half years. And uh, but we're we're in the will of God. I my voice is all a mess from the last few years from teaching school so much. And uh, I don't really do much of anything much in ministry now. I just I drive and get them to the rehearsals, and that's about. And I move chairs uh, before, after uh, the rehearsal. I told them this morning. I said, "This is about all I'm good for now: moving chairs." But I'm moving chairs. So anyway, we're here, and uh, I should say something else. <laughs> God is good. He. Uh... He knows the future, and um, just like Philip said, when things totally make no sense, one day they will, and um, God, has, God brought us through. He knew what we were going to face if we didn't leave, and um, just when we moved, I would tell Philip every once in a while, like, it's got to be something else that that's going to happen. It, it's not just we left, you know, and... Like Philip said, COVID came. I was like, okay, I understand now. But then later on, I was like, no, there, there's got to be something worse than this that will happen. And when the war came, I knew inside of my heart because, like, I needed personal confirmation from me. I knew all about that. But it was like, I needed God just to show me that I understand why I'm here. And now I know because it would be horrible. And one other thing, uh, I, uh, who knows if all of you would be alive or together right oh, yeah. now. And see, my son would have been on the Russian front. He's, yeah. he's a Ukrainian citizen. Yeah, he would have been conscripted at that point. Yeah, it wouldn't, he wouldn't have been allowed out of the country. Yeah, yeah and that's so, right. Because all the men from 18 to 60, they cannot leave. And so God knew, God knew. And I've done a lot of eschatology preaching about the coming of the Lord. And I have some books that I pre- had thousands of books printed and my aunt who I thought was poor as Job's turkey one day on my birthday she called me and says what do you need Philip I said well we need these doors for the church we were building a church and she's and that's like certain amount of thousand dollars we need this and that she says Philip I'm just going to give you a hundred thousand dollars 
This woman, my mom's sister, she lived in an old broken down trailer house. $100,000. Well, I gave it all to the church. And we had some, I had some books printed, the day of the Lord books printed. And so the next, and I, next year I come back and I show her all the pictures of the things in the new building that her money did. She said, okay, I'm going to give you another 50000 So we gave all the money to the church and did leave. I thought, why was I so stupid? I should have kept money a little bit to live off of. But anyway, the church was finished. And, uh, oh my goodness, the greens were so wonderful. And there have been hundreds and, oh, probably a thousand weddings have taken place in that church. But people come from all over Ukraine and have weddings in that beautiful, beautiful church facility. And now, in a week and a half, the, the, I had 16 hours of television to go with the books. And in about a week and a half, we're trying to raise about $2,500 right now to finish out the new production of the DVDs. or seven DVDs, 16 hours of television program. Grammy that is very, very good. And they're requesting it all over the United States. So I had the people uh, yesterday, matter of fact, that's strange, yesterday. And so they're going to start the day after tomorrow. They're going to start uh, work to, to redo, revamp everything with new technology. And about $2,500. And so I'll let you listen to it. It's good stuff. And so do we can see it all over. Do you feel like that's where, where God's has brought y'all to now that after everything y'all have accomplished now it's about passing down the legacy yes and no our children are important but I'm not dead yet and I still have a way I still want millions of people saved through my ministry and it's not there yet I, when you know kids people are young like I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 25 well that was not what I prayed when I was a kid Lord I want a million souls I want at least a million souls and so I'm on the way and this Day of the Lord program is going all over the world. People all over the world know who I am. I got calls, information yesterday from Ohio. Philip, what about this? From I got called this last week from England. Philip, what about this? From from Western from Western England. So I get people know me all over the world. Nobody here knows me. It doesn't matter. But people who have anything to do with Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, they know who I am. And so. Uh, God's, God's so not through with works it. like that. I went to a Messianic Jewish synagogue for a while, and uh, one of the guys on our worship team, he created his own music albums, and no one in America bought them. But in Germany and Israel and these other places, he, he, was, he was like a celebrity. He was a rock star. He went over, over there to Germany for a mission trip with him. And everyone knew this guy. He was stopped on the streets with this guy. Yeah. And I was just like... Now, like, I feel like I'm just walking next to Mick Jagger over here, and he was just like normal Phil, you know? Uh, his name was also Phil, but uh, he was like normal Phil at the church, you know? Um, it's just funny how that works sometimes. Well, so we will see what we will see. Jesus is coming soon, but I think it's uh, God's on the move. Terrible things are going on on our border right now, but God is not through with this country. Well, I guess we better go. Our son is outside waiting on us for, what, an hour and something, whatever this is. Well, um, so when we wrap up, is so you talked about your projects. Is there any way that people can donate to what you're doing, anything? Uh, yes. Uh, all offerings now for this new project mm -hmm. are going through Beams of Light Tabernacle Church in uh, Sepulpa. And anybody who wants information, send an email 
to philipandmaria at gmail.com. Philip, the two L's, Philip and A-N-D, Maria at gmail.com. Or call me at 918-404-9303, and I can give you information. Okay. I'll also... Or for, text me. For anyone listening, I'll also put that in the description. Please um, do. You can find that Please in the box do. there. And then, um, so as we end, can y'all just say a prayer for, number one, anyone who feels called to missions, whether that's a Ukraine or somewhere else, and then anyone's listening who may not know the Lord. Okay. Uh, let's do uh, people for accept the Lord first. And then, Masha, you pray for people feeling the call to missions. You can pray in Russia or Ukrainian. Okay, Beth, if you're under the sound of my voice, which apparently you are, <laughs> and you haven't asked Jesus into your heart, it's the most important thing in your life. You do not want to die without Jesus in your heart. And so, if you would like to know this Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, pray this simple prayer and believe. Now, I can't help you. Only Jesus can help you, but He will hear your prayer, and He will answer, and He will come into your heart. Repeat after me and believe, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't know everything about you, but I believe in you. I accept you into my heart as my Lord and Savior. Please come into my life. Show me that you're real. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for coming into my heart. I ask for your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me. In the name of Jesus, I'm a Christian. Amen. Amen. And if you feel called to missions, Mosh, I'm going to ask her to pray in Russian. It's her. She's not comfortable praying so much in, in English. So Masha, pray in Russian. And it doesn't matter if they understand you or not. God will understand. And God answers the prayer. Okay? Господь, я славлю Тебя, я благодарю Тебя за это время, за то, что Ты действуешь в наших сердцах, за то, что Ты привел Филиппа в Украину, Господь, за то, что стольким людям он смог привести к Тебе. Я прошу Тебя, если кто-то чувствует призвание, чтобы стать миссионером, чтобы поехать в какую-либо страну, в которую Ты призываешь их, Господь, я прошу Тебя, пусть Твой огонь горит в их сердцах для этого, для этой миссии, и благослови их, и дай им все необходимое, чтобы они добрались до того места, где ты хочешь их видеть. Я благодарю тебя, Господь. Аминь.